GM. I'm Dan Roberts. And I'm Stephen Graves. And this is GM from Decrypt. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Okay, Stephen Graves, GM, or I guess I should say bonjour. GM Dan. Welcome back on and welcome home, or in your case, you're doing a stint in Portugal, but welcome back from France, where we just hit up NFT Paris. And I was blown away. What was your experience? Yeah, I thought it was really interesting. Um, there were a lot of, you know, big brands on display. Um, there didn't seem to be much of a feel that it was like a bear market or anything like that. Um, there was a lot of enthusiasm for the space and a lot of uh, development going on. Yeah, 100%. Um, Boy, that bear market comment, I agree completely. I walked away from it feeling so bullish, I'm almost sheepish to describe it because it just makes me sound like some big cheerleader. But to be clear, I mean, this is not at all the way I usually feel after crypto conferences. And I go to a lot of these things, you go to a lot of these things. I've gone to some in the past and it's kind of a shrug. You know, they're hit or miss. Um, we know at Decrypt how hard it is to, to plan and pull off a great live event. You know, we do much smaller, more intimate events that are really high value, but this was a huge one with 10,000 people in this giant, beautiful domed uh, space looking out at the Eiffel Tower. And it's like you said, I mean, you you couldn't have walked through this space and thought NFTs are dead, crypto's in big trouble, everyone is down bad. It did not feel that way at all. Yeah, it's definitely the uh, the best backdrop I've ever had for a panel discussion with the Eiffel Tower in the background. Yeah, and, and I'm glad you mentioned the brands too. That was a big takeaway I had is... I feel like, of course, there have been companies saying for years, oh, you know, we're in Web3 or we like crypto or we're, we're experimenting with NFTs. But it felt to me like it is now moving from uh, the theoretical into the actual because, you know, and, and this was Paris, but big luxury brands, I mean, LVMH on hand, uh, Adidas, Salesforce, you know, huge CRM giant, all these big companies, Panerai, the, the luxury watchmaker, all these big companies were there, and instead of talking about vague platitudes, they were touting actual NFT projects and launches that they've done. Yeah, and I think um, some of those projects were actually, you know, quite interesting ones. It wasn't just, you know, brands doing a quick NFT drop and calling it, um, you know, they're, they're dipping into the metaverse or whatever. They were actually doing, you know, useful, practical things with the technology. I'll give you one other kind of takeaway thought, and I wrote a column on this. Uh, Brigitte Macron came, which was pretty cool. I mean, people just caught her walking around and we heard from uh, a friend among the organizers that it was totally spontaneous, un unannounced, unplanned. Uh, and she didn't just, you know, show up for a quick photo op. Like she walked around the whole space, looked at the different booths. She sat at the Rocket Factory booth and minted an NFT. And I just, I was struck by that. Also, France's culture minister came, but I was struck by that because the thought I had was, you know, in a million years, I cannot imagine um, Jill Biden, you know, the first lady of, of the U.S. attending a crypto conference. It just wouldn't happen right now. And I think it underscores that Europe has been much more welcoming and friendly to crypto companies. And the U.S., I think, 
risks pushing them out with its uh, severe, strict crackdown. Europe and particularly Paris, I think they're they're really making a play to be seen as the the center of NFT development specifically and and crypto developments more generally. And they have some you know big crypto brands based out there. They have companies like Ledger, and part of that I suspect is due to all of the um, the luxury brands that are based there. Yeah, 100%. I, I mean, let's also mention Binance, after saying we have no headquarters for years, uh, opened a headquarters within the last year in Paris, with good reason. Yeah, absolutely. What can we say? Well, we conducted, uh, just a, a, a few of us from the Decrypt team, 28 taped video interviews over the course of two days, which um, I'm very proud of. You did a lot of these interviews. I did a lot of them. Liam Kelly did some. And uh, all those videos are now on our site, so I encourage all the listeners to check them out. Each one about six to ten minutes, and almost each of these had some really interesting nuggets. You know, we've done a lot of articles from them, but I think what we should do here on the pod is is highlight just a few of the interviews that really stood out to us. So let's start with one of the the biggies, so to speak, which was Yatsiu, and of course he's the chairman of Animoca Brands. Uh, it seems to me that no one has doubled down more money-wise on the metaverse than this guy. I mean, they have continued to raise metaverse funds and pour billions into this space, and uh, he's done it in a very opposite way from, say, Mark Zuckerberg. You know, Yatsiu believes it should be the open metaverse, and it's not about centralized players. Uh, he had some strong words about Meta and other centralized big tech companies. Big NFT guy, big metaverse guy. So let's let's roll that interview. Okay, wrapping up day two here at NFT Paris. I'm Dan Roberts from Decrypt, and we got Yatsiu Animoca Brands. Yat, what's up? How are you doing? Great. It's a pleasure to be here. The you know the conference is a lot of energy. Um, you know, I think it's wonderful. So let's talk about the metaverse to start with. Sure. I mean, there's a lot I want to ask you. Yeah. But you guys are metaverse bulls. Mm-hmm. Um, I think quite recently raising another metaverse fund. Mm-hmm. But when we talk about the idea of the metaverse, I mean. Everyone has a different premise of what that is. Sure. You know, we interviewed Sebastian from the Sandbox in this booth a few hours ago. You know, they are fully in the metaverse. Yes. Um, I spoke to the Web3 lead at Playboy. They're going to build the Playboy mansion in the metaverse. All that sounds kind of cool. But even me, and like, you know, I'm an occasional gamer. I'm not really sure I want to spend that much time in the metaverse yet. Like, it's just not really there for me. So what's the first so thing what, you do in the your morning? Outlook? What's the first thing you do in the morning? Like, brush my teeth and have breakfast? Yeah. Do you check your phone? Coffee. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay, you're right. That's the first thing. Yes. Immediately. Exactly. You check your phone. How much time do you spend on your mobile phone? Where is your mental... Way too much. Where, where is your mental attention? Hours and hours and hours. You're online. Phone and laptop. You're yep. already in the metaverse. You're just not in a metaverse in which you have any ownership in. The metaverse, as we describe it, the true metaverse, the open one, is one where we have digital ownership, which is why Sandbox and these things are so exciting. But our attention that is online is already farmed by the likes of you know, Facebook and those guys. And we're there on average between 8 to 10 hours a day. That's actually more hours than you spend actually in the physical world. And even though you're physically in a place, your mental sort of uh, capacity, your thinking, your time, your Instagram, whatever you do, is actually where you spend most of your attention. In fact, think about what happens if you're not online. Can you make friends the same way? Can you do business? Can you actually exist? And the reality is that probably your online existence is more valuable and more critical than your physical one. So we think the journey to the metaverse already began in the 80s with CompuServe and these early online services. Because think of the feelings and emotions you have back then or even today when you're online. They're real feelings. You know, when you have frustrations with people that you're playing online games with, when you see something that's online that outrages you or that you love. Trolls. Right? Trolls, for instance, right? Especially in your industry, right? But either way, 
it's real feelings, right? It's real partnerships you make, it's real friendships that you make. So it's a real reality. The only thing again is why we focus on what we call the open metaverse, is that that's the premise in which you actually now have ownership in this. So we think of everything that we do in the closed metaverse as it is today, you know, like the games we play or whatever online experiences we have, kind of like visiting Disneyland, right? It's, you don't own anything, it's entertaining, it's fun, but you're giving all your value to Disney, right? That's exactly what's happening right now. And in Web3, which is so beautiful, is that now you have a shared ownership in this. Whether you, when you own land in Sandbox, the success of Sandbox, the network effects that accrue in Sandbox, you get to participate. Uh, you know, both the good and the bad, of course. So, I, I like that pitch a lot. I mean, maybe what we're really talking about, though, is perception. You know, because I still think a lot of people out there, when they think of the metaverse, they imagine my digital avatar, and I'm doing a meeting in the metaverse, and a lot of people just kind of think about it and go, I don't need to do that. I mean, I'm thinking specifically, you made fun of Facebook, you know, Meta came out, and it, they had an ad where Mark and other execs say, now we're doing our meeting in the metaverse. And you look at that ad, and it was like, that seems stupid. Yes. I mean, we could just be on Zoom. Why do I need to be in the metaverse and be represented by an avatar? But do you feel like maybe the term itself has become a little weighed down and toxic, or at the very least, meaningless? I mean, metaverse no, means so many different things. No, like, I don't think it, uh, it's meaningless. It's just that it's people are attempting to sort of usurp the term for their own purposes. Now, if you're Facebook, why do you want to call that the metaverse? Because you're pushing Horizon. And what you want to do is have people have these funny-looking avatars. Why? Because they want to, you to buy Oculus sets. And, and your company is called Meta now, exactly. so it's the exactly. Metaverse. Exactly. And the other thing, of course, that I think that when they did this plan to sort of you know, build the Metaverse, as it were, their version, it was kind of a semi-genius strike to call their company Meta. Because imagine people who don't know anything about the Metaverse, which is most of the world, having dinner table, lunch, and said, hey, did you hear about the Metaverse? Oh, isn't Meta doing that? I mean, it's just, if you think about it from that sense, I'm sure some PR marketing guys were like, that's what we want. Thankfully though, most people don't trust Facebook for good reason, right? I mean, they've screwed around way too much. And as a result, people are generally distrustful of what they've done. Remember, Facebook actually has a history of, I think he gets it. I mean, Libra, right? If you think about the genesis of- DM. Right? Yeah, DM, right? And if you think about the genesis even of some companies like Aptos and Mission Labs, they all came from Facebook. Actually, Facebook had a big blockchain team. So there is an understanding there. We don't quite know, I don't quite know what happened there, but they knew what was happening. And then emerging that into the metaverse thereafter, there was probably a grand master plan that become, be, probably became completely Frankenstein because of the regulation, because of the conflicts of interest, probably because of the fact that there was probably people inside Facebook who were like, we don't want this. So there are a whole bunch of things that are happening that I'm not privy to. This is why the current sort of meta version that, of, of, of the metaverse as in Facebook is really quite horrible at this moment in time. Uh, and that's, I don't, but I don't think it's because Mark didn't have a vision. I think it's because he's dealing with a classic innovative dilemma. But you have to innovate from the fringes. You can't innovate from within the company. Or you have to be on your knees like how Apple was, which Facebook isn't. They're doing quite well. Well, yeah. well although financially. Right, yes. that now the metaverse division at Meta <laughs> yeah. has not done well since they announced the name change. Yes. And you know, I, I sort of wonder, are they now throwing good money after bad because they feel they have to double down on it? So I, mean, I think you can't walk away at this point, but yeah. I think the way that Facebook is thinking about the metaverse, I think is unfortunately uh, doomed. And the reason why I think it's doomed is because the network effects impended in there don't belong to very users themselves. Last year we had something like 22, close to $22 billion of NFTs sold, which is a lot, right? It's not, it's not, not bad. Now in that paradigm though, most of the value right, goes back to the owners or the creators who made that. This is very different. 
in the world of metaverse, as in, as, as in the world of Facebook, you have to give up 50% of that revenue. So you have to make up for that, right? Which means that the entire economy of Facebook has to be, you know, three or four times larger to just make up for the kind of money that creators are making already in the Web3 paradigm. And that'll just accelerate. And there's a point where, you know, when this is $100 billion, that actually means that Meta has to make $300 billion to catch up. The, the economies of scales don't work this way because they have to recreate basically everything that the blockchain already has made. You mentioned uh, creator fees. Yes. Right? Creators getting more of the cut. Yes. And, you know, as I recall it, in the initial kind of NFT peak boom, mm. that was one of the big value props. Was Correct. Who can, who's yes. not going to get on board with yes. giving more money to the creators? Great. Yes. Now suddenly, thanks to the marketplaces, we've got this race to the bottom. Yes. Many of them are going to get rid of creator fees entirely. And, you know, not if we what, can help it. What are anybody. we doing here yes. if we're not going to give money back to the creators? I mean, what do you make of that sudden So first of all, uh, I mean, I think this is all about uh, grabbing market share. The, and it's at the expense of the creators, which we think is wrong for exactly. many, many reasons. The way we think of it is, you know, how Ethereum needs gas, creators need royalties. Basically, you don't have a creator economy without gas, right? And here's the in really important thing. We think the future of crypto and Web3 generally is all culture. Why do we think it's culture? When you think of, we think of the metaverse and web, sort of, you know, layer one, layer two blockchains, like building national economies. There's many elements around that, right? You can't measure Ethereum on the basis of how much gas it generates. It's about the economic activity and developers that Financial are building. Rails. Exactly. Systems, ecosystem, employment, all these things that happen because of Ethereum, right? Now, imagine, you know, in the physical world, if we didn't have an economy that was based on culture. We think of culture as, you know, maybe an artist or a musician. But actually, if it wasn't for that artist or musician, you wouldn't have Netflix, you wouldn't have HBO, you wouldn't have Sony PlayStation, you wouldn't have a TV, you wouldn't have radio, you wouldn't have everything that you enjoy right now. Culture is the biggest soft power and perhaps the biggest driver of economic and economic growth. Even our trade and retail, the richest person in the world is the owner of LVMH. He's basically a proponent of culture. We're here in France and that's all it is, right? And also, speaking in DeFi terms, culture is the biggest TVL of an economy. Right? I mean, that's what people sink their money in because they love it and they don't trade it. But there's a small percentage of people, as we have in the finance world, that basically are from crypto Wall Street. And what they do is they just look at profit maximization. They trade and trade and trade, and that's fine. They don't like royalties. They're the proponents who say get rid of royalties. But what they don't know or what they don't want to know is that if you basically kill the royalties, you kill the very industry that fed you. So it has to be protected. And we think it's a legal approach. So we've come out with license agreements to give creators as a way to protect them in the same way that music rights were protected from YouTube. If you remember, the story was said before. Wasn't that long ago when there was Napster? Over and over. Wasn't that long ago when YouTube was like, I didn't upload the content. I'm not responsible for it, right? And then Viacom sued YouTube and they settled. And the settlement was that YouTube wasn't just going to honor royalties from Viacom. They honored royalties and basically from any artist in the world or if they couldn't protect it, they would take it down, and you get what's known as a DMCA, DMCA. takedown. Oh, exactly, yeah. exactly. Well, so those. that's that's basically uh, where we think the industry has to go, and we have to basically rely on these protections, because I think smart contract ways and block lists is not the way, because it leads the metaverse into a, a centralized permission environment. You know, suddenly OpenSea or Blur maybe or Magic Eden get to decide where your NFTs can be traded. That's not okay. People will just yeah. go elsewhere. Yeah. Um, couple more questions for you. Yeah. I love when you say, you know, that Web3 is about culture. That's kind of the main thing here. It's all going to be about culture. It's already culture, if you think well, about it. Well, it, yeah. it already is. But, but, and I focus on this probably more than crypto people would like, but 
I first wrote about Bitcoin in 2011. Mm. I mean, earlier than yeah. And even now, all these years later, it still seems to me that there's people who are interested in crypto, even if you have a passing interest, yeah. they, they believe this is a real and legitimate thing. Right. And then there's sort of people who just do not want to be convinced. They view it all as something that is vaguely scammy, toxic, repellent. Mm. Do you feel like, you know, that that's ever going to be reconciled? Uh, well, they, used to, they used to be called no-coiners. Yes. You know? So I think the no-coiners thing is predominantly a Western narrative, as in it's much more pre predominant in America and perhaps in Europe. Uh, in Asia, for instance, we don't have that. And that's not to say that people don't, that, that we have mass adoption of crypto in a big way, necessarily, but people aren't as sort of negative towards it. And I think a lot has to do with people's perspectives on capitalism. So this, to me, is a political thing. Blockchain is one of the few technological approaches where political systems is actually embedded. It's a capitalist, liberal viewpoint of the world. And if you are not okay with that, which a lot of people aren't, right? If you grow up in a very socialist environment, if you, you know, think about America. Most youth under the age of 30 are now thinking socialism is a good system. They may not fully understand it, but it explains the rise of Bernie Sanders and all these things because capitalism hasn't worked for them, right? And also, you know, unlike Asia, they've enjoyed, you know, property rights for, you know, eons and eons, like for centuries, they didn't have to worry about their losing their home. People in Asia actually lived, my parents ex experienced a time in China where their property was worth nothing. You know, patent rights and intellectual property protection in China only happened in the 80s, right? I mean, you know, this is in living memory. South Korea, which is the 12th largest economy in the world today, the biggest exporter of culture, you know, K-pop, K-culture, K-drama, games and so on. It was, you know, I think one of the poorest nations in the world. It was a military dictatorship, no property rights in the 80s. And now, you know, no natural resources, no oil, none of that stuff. Basically just developed out of basically cultural power. I would also say, that what makes America isn't the dollar. The dollar is, of course, the medium of exchange. It's culture. The ability for you to influence, or Americans to influence the world, is because of television. Freedom, liberty, all these things. You accept that culture because of Hollywood. That's the big soft power. And it's what we sink our money in, and it's what we believe in. When you see the Statue of Liberty, when you see the American flag, what does it say to you? It doesn't say specifically, you know, what's the value of that. You don't trade that. It's a feeling, it's a tradition. There's a power there. And for the people who are in Bitcoin or in crypto, even if they don't think of it this way, that's what they believe too, right? The people who are in Web3 actually will have a belief in sort of a future that's better, in a kind of stakeholder capitalism, in a kind of shared economy in which we can share values. And that's what gets them excited. And I think the, talking about the no-coiners, they're just fearful of money. You know, people talking about billionaires as the fault of the system. You know, we need to sort of, you know, you know all that stuff's happening. And I think that if we can bring them in and they can understand what the opportunity is, we can bring them back to explain to them why capitalism is actually powerful. In other words, I actually think that Web3 and crypto can actually save the capitalist narrative. And as a result, I also think, especially because of DAOs and so on, it can reintroduce the value of democracy, which frankly, a lot of people have started to lose faith in, more so in the West, ironically. They just say, uh, you know, what's backing it? It seems like someone just made it up. And then the conversation kind of ends. Right. You know, you explain all the great things you said, and they say, ah, it seems like a Ponzi. It's like, ah. And then something like FTX happens. Doesn't help things reputationally. Of but course. It, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's end on this. You know, when, when you look at the next few years, mm. specifically with NFTs, yeah. you're at NFT Paris, although you're in many different corners of crypto. But right. 
when we look at NFTs, we had that kind of giant initial pop. It was yeah. very speculative. It was people flipping monkey yeah. JPEGs. Yes. Then the prices go down. Those same people, now they just focus on the price. They say, oh, this collection's way down. How are we going to kind of move into the next phase? Or what will the next phase be for people who were so focused on price in the past to understand the value here? Is it going to be all about utility? You say right. it's not just digital art, it's yes. a ticket or it's a membership pass into a club. Yeah. What's going to kind of do it and get us away from that um, speculative flipping mindset? So first of all, utility, culture, identity are basically the main things that we think we're going to help drive that. There's still going to be a base of people who trade, but remember, just look at Blur. Is it 500 people that trade, right? Driving all that volume? I mean, it's insane. And all they want and, it was a token. Yeah, it's and all it, that people just yeah. want a token. And it's amazing. But there's a small portion. You know, and it's like how some people say, oh, look at Sandbox. Nobody's using it because they're looking at the number of people trading NFTs. I'm like, wait, there's 250,000 people that are using Sandbox, but there's only maybe 1,000 people trading. That doesn't mean the population is 1,000, right? I mean, you don't measure the size of the US economy based on how many people trade on Wall Street, right? I mean, that's not how it works. Unfortunately, for people in the finance world, that's their lens, right? So they're like, if there's no volume, if there's, if there's no trade, it doesn't mean anything. But we don't trade our cultural items. We don't trade our wedding rings, right? We don't trade our houses. I mean, some do, most don't, right? We don't trade the shirts we buy. Some do, some don't, right? The majority keep it because it's part of the identity. Think about all the things that you buy in the physical world. They form who you are. You choose to buy a certain shoe, not because you think you can flip it. You choose to buy it because it says something about you. Maybe you choose a Tesla versus a Mercedes versus a Rolls Royce. Again, you don't do it because you think you can sell it. Some do, most people do it because they want to send a signal. It's part of their identity. Even the district you choose to live in, whether it's a district in Sandbox or a district in LA, right? it's saying something about who you are or who you want to be. Right? So these are all the points of sort of culture that really is relevant and important, and I think it's going to drive that. Where it's going to come from? I think it's going to come from gaming in the short term. The reason why? Lots of the blockchain games, Web3 gaming was one of the highest funding categories in general gaming and even in Web3, broadly speaking, in the last 12 to 18 months. But it takes a couple of years to make a good game, right? It's not, you know, hey, it's just going to happen. And so that means these games are all going to come out round about the end of this year. Some of the games, if you look at the quality, like Phantom Galaxy, for instance, or Life Beyond, these are actually games that have a AAA quality. And you look at it and you say, oh, I didn't know Web3 games could look like that. They're emerging. Many of them will roll out. And I think this is where mass adoption will come from initially. What I'm also excited about is the intersection between Web3 and financial education is absolute. Someone who's in Web3 is generally much more financially educated than someone in Web2. It's like almost like 100%. If you're in Web3, you may not be an expert trader, but you know about financial systems. Whereas in Web2, there's probably 1% that knows something about financial systems. You have a bank account, and that's your financial inclusion, right? You don't know much about it. So the exciting path on this one is that we don't have to think about people onboarding just in terms of how do I onboard you in the context of, you know, like, like a game that's attractive and maybe you go in there, but I have no idea. Like I'm not a big fan, for instance, in creating sort of, you know, uh, invisible sort of wallet experiences because you don't learn about it. Like I don't, I think, yes, it onboards you, but then you, you have to reduce the friction somehow. You have to reduce the friction, but part of the friction is education because the value of a Web2 user becoming a Web3 user is when he becomes financially educated. Right? And we see this, for instance, with you know, onboarding projects like Gamey, which is casual games. They signed up 3 million users, great. And a single digit percentage actually ended up trading the NFTs and doing stuff because they don't really understand it. Right? But they're getting there. But if we can actually create the education onboarding so they understand that onboarding is also about financial literacy, then that's more powerful. So it's combining that. And why I like games? Because 
Remember any game that you may have played, the tutorial. How long does it take you? Half an hour, 20 minutes? Well, for some of the big games, it takes a while, okay. right? Right. I mean, the casual games, like, you know, sure, Angry Birds is like, like this. But many of the sort of big games that people play, it's a long tutorial. Ask the kids, you know, what do they know about Pokemon? What do they know about Roblox? They can tell you all sorts of lore and stories. In other words, gaming is the most powerful interactive storytelling narrative. Through that process, you will learn about maybe financial literacy and the value of systems and the value of maybe the chain and Web3, generally speaking. So that's why we're bullish on gaming, at least in the near term. These games you're excited about, that you think are coming in around a year, yeah. are they going to convert all the virulent NFT haters? I think These gamers who hate NFTs and get so triggered? I think, uh, well, as I said, the hate is a political hate. Right? It's a reaction to capitalism more than, I think, it's a reaction to just blockchain. Right? It's like the same, they have the same hate to bankers, they have the same hate to people who make too much money, they have the same hate to you know, some trader. Right? So I don't think it's actually that different. I think the growth will come from Asia in the short term because Asians don't have that hate, right? Think of all the gaming companies, whether it's Square Enix, or Krafton, or Netmarble. These are established gaming companies outside of ourselves that are already deep in Web3 that are saying, let's do Web3. And they don't have to contend with the hostility of you know, a vocal minority. But eventually, as we've seen with free-to-play gaming, Asia led the way as well. The criticism for the Web2 gamers when free-to-play free gaming became big, maybe some 10, 11 years ago, was, oh my goodness, I don't want free to play because it's going to favor the person who's going to spend the most money in the game. I don't like that. And guess what? Almost the entire industry is run now by free to play. So I think the same will happen with uh, uh, blockchain and Web3 gaming. You sound as bullish as ever. Always. <laughs> nice to hear it. Thanks for talking to us. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Okay. So, boy, just real quick, one of the quotes I loved there toward the end was when he said, we believe that the future of Web3 is culture. You know, not everyone does believe that. I mean, there's a lot of people in crypto who they're in crypto as investors and they want to buy tokens and watch the coin go up and then flip them. And they're not so sold on NFTs. Uh, I think I agree with Yatsu that the real exciting part of crypto right now is cultural. It's art and NFTs and pop culture and luxury. Certainly that's what it felt like at NFT Paris. Um, so that stood out to me. What about you, Stephen? Yeah, I think that was interesting, particularly that idea of like cultural capital um, being one of the you know big soft power plays for for nations, and it can equally be that for for the Web three space. I think the other interesting thing that he said was um, the idea of triple uh, A Web three games coming down the pipe, because that seems to be an obvious um, stumbling block to date for the for the hopes of the the Web three and and crypto space um, in in the gaming uh, sector. Is that there've been a lot of games, but they've been, you know, indie games, or they've been based around a single mechanic, or they've been fairly, um, you know, cheap and uh, well, I don't want to say thrown together, but they haven't had that sort of AAA quality of, a, of an Assassin's Creed or a GTA. So the idea that that games that are really going to look and play like top tier titles are coming is is quite exciting. Yeah, I agree. And it was one of the first conversations I've had that sold me a little bit more on that because personally, I'm not much of a gamer. I mean, I certainly played video games like in college, um, mostly sports type video games like Madden and NBA Live and that kind of stuff. Um, and I had a GameCube. I used to love Mario Kart and Smash Brothers, but I'm very out of touch when it comes to gaming. I haven't really played games in probably over a decade. And so whenever we have covered this phenomenon and you know NFTs and digital items and games, and people say it's the future, I've sort of felt like, well, it's the future if you're a gamer. But it seemed to me in the past that I don't see how that's going to reach everyone. 
And yet he has a way of describing it that I think makes it sound much more universal. Um, and in addition, I think makes it a lot easier to understand, like these are just digital items and everyone understands the idea of an in-game item, whether it's, you know, a weapon or a tool or a skin or a hat or a helmet. So, uh, I felt a little more sold on that after hearing it from him. And, um, you know, maybe he's just a, a good talker, which he is. I mean, that was one of our longest interviews. He, he seemed like he could have gone even longer, but, um, but he also sounded pretty unconcerned about the whole gamer backlash to NFTs, I thought. I think the other interesting thing about that was I, I've often thought personally that the, the way forward for NFT gaming is to produce, you know, a great game that plays really, really well, where the crypto side of it is almost incidental. And the onboarding process is very, very streamlined and simple and almost abstracted away. He seemed to disagree with that. He said he was not a fan of invisible wallets and that we need to reduce friction through education, which I thought was particularly interesting. We haven't even mentioned the sort of, I guess, political element that came up. You know, <laughs> I, I always love to ask uh, smart people about those who hate crypto. I, I probably am more focused on it even than we should be. I just kind of find it fascinating. And uh, there, was that, there was that moment where he said, that the no coiners thing isn't really a thing in Asia, which I don't fully believe. Um, you know, he, he quickly cautioned. I'm not saying everyone is pro crypto; it's the future. But you know, he launched into that whole explanation of the, the. It comes down to capitalism and your politics around money and the politics of money. I just thought that was interesting. He said he, he thinks that the kind of virulent opposition to crypto is really a U.S. thing. Possibly. Um, I mean, I'm I'm not sure I entirely agree with that, but it'll be interesting to see how that plays out over the next few years. Well, let's tee up another one for the listeners. Uh, speaking of the metaverse, if we stay in the metaverse, we were able to talk to uh, the COO and the co-founder of The Sandbox, and that's Sebastian Borgent. And of course, The Sandbox came up in a lot of our other interviews. I mean, I think it was a great conference for The Sandbox. There's a lot going on in there. Uh, it seems to me that among the people who are investing in the metaverse, they are definitely um, investing in The Sandbox. I mean, one of the interviews we did was with the Web3 lead at Playboy, and Playboy's next Web3 venture is a virtual Playboy mansion. They're calling it the Meta Mansion, and of course, it'll be in the sandbox. So uh, let's hear that conversation that you, Stephen, had with Sebastian. We'll be right back after this. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to day two of NFT Paris. I'm Stephen Gray, reporting for Deeper. I'm joined by Sebastian from Sandbox. Hi, Steve. How are you doing? How are you finding NFT Paris so far? Very good and uh, like uh, really exciting. Yeah. Like much, much bigger than last year. Last year we already found like NFT Paris was representing like some of the best of like the NFT culture and positioning Paris and France at the heart of it. And I think like, well, just looking around and seeing all this uh, mixture of uh, culture in all its form, arts, music, fashion, uh, gaming, metaverse, uh, it's incredible. Like you, you can feel how concrete it is, how creative it is in this space, how much like people are creators in the NFT community. 
and it's happening right in front of the Eiffel Tower, like what a best place. And speaking of the metaverse, what are some of the most exciting developments happening in Sandbox recently? Well, there's always something uh, going on on Sandbox, obviously. We had uh, like a great 2022 years with more than 400 brands that join us, more than 200 studios in our ecosystem. We've grown the community of landowners with more than 23,000 landowners and over 4.5 million users with a wallet. We had 1 million people last year that entered Sandbox experiences in the metaverse. So it's a good start knowing that the platform is not yet open, right? So that's what's coming up this year. We'll open the sandbox so like any landowner can publish their land. Uh, we have announced already some key elements of our roadmap, such as our uh, new game maker, which is adding a lot of features regarding multiplayer, video and audio streaming, a lot of visual effects and more game mechanics. We understand that it's core to work on the creation tool, the product and the tech so that creators can develop like fun, engaging experiences to the service of the brand or the project or their community, building around NFT gaming, uh, allowing to gate access or to create, not, not, not necessarily gating only, but some sort of like upgraded engagement gameplay if you own an NFT versus if you don't, etc. So we're uh, working pretty actively on, on that side. Um, we'll also probably launch the first concert this year. I cannot tell too much yet, but it's, uh, it's been on the work uh, for quite some time. And, really looking forward to it and um, we'll have a, a major season of season four too uh, which will uh, feature many brands a lot of uh, content built with that new game maker so just picking up on the, on the subject of metaverse the term itself has been treated in slightly different ways by slightly different outlets there, there seems to be a sense that it's been somewhat co-opted by i guess centralized metaverses how do you think uh, web3 can sort of reclaim the term the metaverse I think from the very beginning we've said like we're part of the metaverse, we're building a piece of this open metaverse which is like this myriad of virtual world that users can access. It is essential in the idea of the metaverse that users have true digital ownership of their content. They are the true owners of their avatar, their digital identity, but also their wearable, their equipment, their land, their house the content that they create or they earn as they engage. That freedom of, uh, of that ownership right is translated by this freedom of moving yourself, your avatar and any content you own from one world to another in a totally uh, transparent, permissionless manner. That's not possible in Fortnite, that's not possible in Roblox and so on. So they are just still centralized virtual worlds and we feel like pushing over this term metaverse for like as a rebranding isn't really uh, it's adding to the confusion for the audience that's why we are still we still need to say open metaverse as opposition to closed uh, wall garden platform and it has it has a, a real impact for creators creators should earn much more 95% or 100% of the revenue they bring and they generate as they contribute to the development, economic development through creating content, opening experiences, or even being there, spending time with their avatar, engaging. That's very valuable and uh, that's what the, the, the open metaverse is proposing. The other important thing in the development of an open metaverse is the creation of open metaverse standards. How is work progressing along those lines and how are you guys contributing to that? So I was going to lead there. Um, <laughs> we announced last November during Web Summit the creation of the OMA3, the Open Metaverse Alliance. 
Uh, Sandbox is one of the founding members together with uh, Decentraland, CryptoVoxel, Appland, uh, Alien World, Animoca Brand, Spaces, and a few other uh, world as well that rely on blockchain and uh, uh, web free technologies. We've advanced uh, already into the setup of like the um, the structure for this um, this this um, organization, and it's now ready to accept members. In the meantime, we had over a thousand applications from companies from Web two and Web three who want to uh, participate. We had already several working groups in place around portaling, uh, transfer of digital identity, regulation laws, um, and other topics and uh, several meetings, some board meetings as well. So that's structuring and there's, it's really an initiative where every project contributes based of course on goodwill and free time uh, of their resource. The interest is there, uh, there's already like some paper in the work. We also have uh, the Metaverse Standard Forum, which been announced uh, a bit earlier last year, that's collaborating with in some way, so the member of one organization can work on the working group of an older in a seamless manner because at the end of the day that's what it should be like not competing but organizations that put the best of the brain from their team to advance on the topic. Fantastic. Sebastian, thanks very much for joining us at NFT Paris. My pleasure. Thank you very much. So one of the things that jumped out for me from this conversation was the use of the phrase open metaverse, which um, is a recurring one, it seemed, because uh, Yatsu also uh, mentioned that it seems like there's a, an effort among certainly Web3 companies to try and reclaim the phrase the metaverse and one of the from, you know, centralized bodies like Meta. And one of the ways they're doing it is by pushing this new buzz phrase, if you effectively, of the open metaverse. Yeah. And of course, you and I got to talk to Neil Stevenson about that, you know, the idea of the open metaverse just a week ago. And it's funny because he sort of said, I, I think adding open is good enough, as in open metaverse is a, is a clear enough way to distinguish the vision that he and Sebastian, Yatsiu and others have for the metaverse versus say meta, even though I know meta disputes that. And I guess I agree. I mean, you know, the question is for the average person, has meta successfully co-opted the term metaverse by trying to change its whole company name to that? I mean, you know, we, we heard this from Yatsiu too, but I appreciated when he acknowledged um, it was actually a genius move by Facebook, you know, because it makes it look like metaverse is their thing. So sometimes I guess I'm saying I worry a little bit that that ploy has succeeded with some people, that there are probably some folks out there, consumers who now they hear metaverse and they think of the company meta. Well, I think what you end up with is a sort of terminology arms race. So, you know, you had the internet, then metaverse tries to co-op the phrase metaverse for the next generation of the internet. And then the, the Web3 folks try and sort of bolt the word open onto the front of that. And that means that they capitalize on the name recognition of the metaverse that meta has done by spreading it out to you know millions, billions of people um, while still differentiating it. So it's, a, it's an interesting play. You know, another thought I had about the sandbox watching you interview Sebastian, and he's listing all their growth and the user numbers. And again, it sounded very impressive to me. You know, I, I know that there are folks out there who like to point to the trading or, or usage on any one day of sandbox and Decentraland, you know, the number of people hanging out in there at any given time. But I sort of buy the argument that you have to look at um, other metrics and the overall number of folks who, who've used it. All that said, the thought I had was, 
I personally currently am not very interested or excited by the potential of going in there. I don't really, you know, have the time, don't want to pop in there and hang out. So the question is like whether that matters, whether there are enough people who don't feel like I feel to make the future of the metaverse a success, or whether you so believe in it that I'll be proven wrong and, you know, in 10 years I will be spending a lot of time in, in the metaverse. Let's keep it moving here. Uh, let's talk about Ariani. That was one of the interesting interviews to me. And I'm going to be really frank. I hadn't heard of Ariani before NFT Paris, but that was clearly sort of the title sponsor with the hugest big booth right when you walk in. And, you know, they sponsored the welcome party and quietly, and maybe the reason I didn't know them is it's, it's obviously a Europe thing, but quietly they've gotten very big. Ariani appears to be the go-to partner for luxury brands that want to do NFTs. Um, you know, Breitling, Vacheron Constantine, IWC, those are all watch brands, of course, Yves Saint Laurent, Lacoste, when Lacoste did its NFT drop, they all use Ariani. Um, and we interviewed the CEO, Pierre Nicola Wurstel. So let's listen to that one. Hey, day two of NFT Paris, and I got Pierre Nicola of Ariani. Pierre Nicola, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me. You guys are one of the big presenter and sponsors here. I mean, you've got a huge booth right when you walk in. Talk to me a little bit about like how the event is going, how are the vibes, and it, it feels like in, in general, Paris has really become a, a bit of a crypto hub recently. Yeah, clearly, and uh, you know the, the size of our presence here uh, is not only linked to uh, uh, our self-interest. We really wanted to bring this event on top of the scene, so we supported the founders since last year, uh, helped them a lot, committed very early. Probably we've put more money than necessary just to support them and make sure that this event here would become a major event in the Web3 scene. And what we've seen uh, this week is absolutely mind-blowing. I mean, uh, you had the same week. It all started on Wednesday. Several events, tons of side events, the best places in Paris, booked by the best projects. Top-level CEOs and founders from the best uh, uh, investors, uh, collections, enablers. So, you know, I, I think clearly these guys uh, did put Paris on the map uh, with a huge scale and, and, and it's great for many reasons. First, we have an amazing ecosystem of startups and entrepreneurs here. Ledger, Sora, I'd like to include us, uh, Sandbox, amazing engineers. But also, we have a rich ecosystem of brands. Brands that have deep relationships with their customers across the globe. Big companies. Big companies. And these brands all the brands that are going to take us from 100 million users to 1 billion users. Because this is through concrete, pragmatic use cases that are going to change the way people interact with their daily lives, that Web3 is going to become mainstream. So if you take this together, you know, the brand ecosystem, startup ecosystem, entrepreneurs and engineers, plus I would say, and I would add um, a, a very clear regulatory uh, uh, format then you just have the best place in the world to do Web3. So I'm, and, you know, and I'm happy that in this context, we might now have the number one event in the world in Paris for this industry. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, you look around this and it's sort of like, what bear market? Yeah. But the people who aren't at this event, they can't tell that. And a lot of people just look at NFT market prices. I mean, for you guys being in the space, what's your outlook for the next year or two? What do you say to people who are so focused on the fact that Oh, it's a bear market, crypto's down. 
you know, how are we going to kind of ride it out and why is all this stuff here to stay? It's really, I mean, personally, it's not nice, okay? Fair <laughs> enough. But I don't think we're going to go to 1 billion or 2 billion users with uh, volatile uh, NFT collections and, and shit coins, you know? Th this is not it, okay? This is not it. So for us, if you look at the, our path, we minted 1 million NFTs last year. We're going to mint probably 10 million this year with more than 50 global brands. This is going to touch my mom, your sister, your brother. Think so? Yes, I think so. None of sure. those people have Ethereum wallets, I got to tell well, you. Well, and that's, that's the thing. The, the technology we built allows for the generation of a wallet. At the same time, you get your first token and you get your first token for real good reason, either because you bought a sustainable good or because you're now part of a loyalty program that is natively interoperable. So all these use cases that are very much, you know, very concrete for people yeah. who interact with brands, then we're going to be able to onboard them at the same time they enter the program or they get the perk. So, and all of that is not linked to any valuation, speculation, collection, whatever the heck the bear market is about. Yeah. This is about transforming the way brands interact with their users with digital freedom, zero-party data, wallet, interoperable wallets, and digital assets and data that they truly own. And so for that, the, the problem is not the bear market, the problem is the big tech that have captured and, 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 and taken into in, in, in hostage the entire world, and brands want to get free of that, and this is what we enable. And so the bear market here is just an element of context. And I would even tell you, during the bull, you got a telephone every day with a brand who wants to do like make oh, a million sure. dollars yep. with a stupid drop yep. with utility so like okay yeah we're gonna do like you know i got this uh, archive and so uh, we're gonna do a collection of uh, ten thousand, and we're gonna bring a lot of utility behind it's like what the fuck are you talking about excuse my french but yeah. what are you talking about so now we don't have that any longer people are like oh that's the bear market we can't do that so how can we use web3 now mm. in a meaningful way instead of trying to solve a, a merch problem or trying to like by magic making money the collections that are making money are real brands they have a real product they build a community around yeah. that around creativity collaboration you don't become that you know it's like it's like if you were right. like, someone oh cool people do cars i'm gonna do cars it's like no you can't do cars you're not a car maker so not everyone is Artifact or Yuga, yeah, you know? Yeah. This is a job, this is product marketing, this is creativity. You know, this is not magic. And, and sometimes during the bull, people are like, oh, that's magic. This, they, they made one million, two million, 30 million. They're like, come on, bro, this is, you know, this is their job, they are creatives, that, that's what they do. You can't copy and paste yeah. that. Yeah. So yeah. honestly, I'm happy I don't have to deal with that all day. Let's end this way. Uh, I really appreciate, you know, you guys are about utility, real use cases. You're talking about brands that are actually doing something beyond just buy this so that we get money. I always appreciate that. What do you think are going to be the use cases for NFTs that, that really bring in a huge horde of new companies that have stayed away so far? You know, some people are excited about the idea of ticketing. Some people love the idea that your NFT gets you into a club. It's a member pass. Uh, we just spoke to Adidas. They had NFTs where you own the NFT, you get physical apparel. Is there any one or maybe two things that you think are especially exciting in terms of what NFTs can be used for? Oh, yeah, the, the, for us, the number one, the big one, is the digital product passport. I bought a sustainable good, let's say a good that has 
a high enough perceived value and a lifespan that is uh, significant, so that can be luxury, obviously, but that can be appliances, that can be cars, that can be furniture. And when I buy that, I'm going to get the passport of this under the form of an NFT. With that, I can prove that I'm the owner. Mm. I can timestamp events related to the life of the, of the product itself. I can resell it easily. I can be in contact with the brand without sharing my email. That is going to be 80% of our yes. minting this year is going to be that. I lose my warranty handbook all the time. No, you know? it's a pain, you know, and the I'll show you. from my microwave. I'll show you. I have my, uh, I, we, we are, you know, at scale with several brands, with Panerai, with Bretling, with uh, IWC. IWC. Yes. There you go. So in, uh, in a couple months, you can have your digital passport okay. with uh, IWC. So. That is going to be big. That is going to touch wine and spirits, appliances, luxury, fashion. It's going to help build a real uh, circularity model around this industry. So that's, that's huge. That's our number one use case, the digital product passport tokenized on a, on a, on a base of ERC721 that we've upgraded with several smart contracts to make it super uh, relevant for this use case. The second use case, is going to be the open interoperable loyalty. Think about uh, why you love your Amex program. Why I love my Amex program is because the points I gain, I can transfer them to Air France or Delta. One click. Not everyone can build that. Usually it's like 10 clicks, you know? Uh, <laughs> true, because you have to log in again. Fair enough, but at least you can do it. Yep. You can do it. And this bridge between airlines and uh, cards, you know, and payment cards, only companies this size can do that. Tomorrow, loyalty programs are fully open and interoperable. And because you have a, a token from a brand, you go to another one and you recognize and you get something because you're qualified, you're part of a culture, a community, a tribe. So that is gonna open so many use cases because the weight and cost of a loyalty program for companies is super complicated to maintain. If all of a sudden, you benefit from a network effect, thanks to the interoperability of the wallets and the tokens, then you have an open loyalty program for everyone, everyone. Starbucks knows it. I mean, yeah. that's why. I, I, I don't uh, know about that though. Oh. You know, I'm curious. The way I read the Starbucks thing, it's a parallel loyalty on the side of the normal uh, one. Yeah. And I well, don't they're see- they're not ready to go all in yet, that's why. Yeah, but, and I don't see yet how this is interoperable with uh, Air France or with uh, McDonald's. Because Give them a call. Call them up. Yeah, I will. I will. Nice. Uh, so I think a loyalty program based on this technology is only valid if it's interoperable. If it gives you access to the capability to prove that you're part of that to someone outside the brand and get something in return. And that's, I think, is going to be huge. Then, obviously, uh, ticketing and entertainment are going to be uh, an enormous use cases and then i think within the five ten next years we're going to see governments uh, tokenizing diplomas uh, driving licenses uh, social security cards anything that requires a proof to be generated yeah. in a digital environment will be unchanged the government thing we'll see i'm a little more skeptical <laughs> about that at least in the u.s i'm skeptical but I th wait, wait 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 i think California is trying an experiment. Yeah, DMV. Yeah, to yeah. put the, the, to yeah. Put the driving license. It's the license. seeds. Yeah, it's good. Uh, great talking to you.
Great Great. stuff. Thank you, Danny. Thanks for having me. Okay. So that was Pierre Nicola. Um, It was funny. His voice was a little rough from partying the night before. He warned me that he was losing his voice. Um, I thought that was really interesting, though, that talking to him. Two things. One, numbers-wise, you know, he said we minted 1 million brand NFTs this year or last year or in the last year, and that in the next year they want to do 10 million with 50 global brands. So impressive numbers. I mean, this is not, you know, making it sound like something when there's nothing there. There's something there. And then at the end of the interview, what what really stuck out to me was, you know, that he thinks the killer use case is going to be rewards programs. You know, Starbucks is an example, although he he pushed back on my Starbucks example. It sounds like he's not that impressed with what Starbucks is doing so far with Polygon. But um, it is true that currently the way those loyalty programs work or rewards points, they're often very clunky. Um, hard to kind of redeem. They don't make it easy. Yeah, and I think what was quite interesting was this idea that interoperability would reduce the cost of loyalty programs for the people running those loyalty programs. So it's you know they're incentivized to do so. There is a sort of question: at, at what point does it does it lose its branding effectively if it's just a sort of universal interoperable um, loyalty program? You know, does does Starbucks really want you taking your Starbucks points and and spending them on I don't know? American Airlines or something. Definitely not. Right. So let's talk about those Web2 brands that are trying to come in. You know, and and again, I I said this off the top, but I was actually really impressed. Most of the brands to me, it didn't seem like they're just tourists, so to speak. They really actually want to do real crypto things. Not all. Some of them, some of them, there there was a lot of talk. But Adidas was really one of the ones that stood out to me. Um, I was glad that we met their Web3 lead, um, Erica. And it seems to me that they've done a number of things. They've proven they're serious about it. And it sounds like they have more in the pipeline. So uh, this is Erica Wicks-Sneed, who's the Web3 lead at Adidas. Let's hear this one. A large global corporation that is publicly traded. How hard was it to kind of get people on board? Because covering these big non-crypto native originally companies that have now gone into Web3, you know, I can see all the time, they're still like pretty cautious. Yeah. And there's a certain image, a certain reputation of crypto. And some companies, they just aren't there yet. Uh, it seems, seems delicate for us. And everyone is very, very image conscious. Yeah. Well, I think that's part of the challenge is step one. How do you make sure that what you're doing is core and inherent to the corporate strategy? So everything that we did building from day one was how do we make sure we're supercharging and using Web3 to fast track what Adidas is saying its corporate goals are. And sometimes on this journey, there's also people you want to keep it away from. And trust me, there were definitely some people who were, you know, barriers, blockers, a lot of no-sayers along the journey. But we also had to find the right way to communicate to them. And that takes time. Um, so our journey actually first was like laying down the strategy, building the foundations, a lot of relationship building for the first nine months before we did anything. Mm. And then by the time we went to market, everybody for the most part thought, wow, Adidas is early. And we were, but we were actually thinking about this and planning it for 10 months prior. What have you guys done in the space? Like real quick, if someone said, I didn't really realize Adidas was in crypto. A lot of NFT collabs. We've done stuff with Bored Apes. What are you excited to get into next? Yeah, Uh, well, what have we done or where are we going? Both. Okay, so if you don't know and you've been sleeping under a rock, I think it was like December 21, we put out and and allowed a minting of 30,000 NFTs. 
those NFTs were then redeemed and the community holders were able to forge them for an exclusive limited edition collection. I'm wearing one of the jacket pieces right here. Physical apparel tied to digital. Tied to digital, cool. yeah. Not that terrible word digital that people say, but no, it was a redeemable. So the token allowed you to redeem it to get your hoodie, your beanie, and your tracksuit. Those were then shipped to the to the holders, and so there's quite a few of them walking around today. From there, we also did the world's largest air mint last June, and what we did was push everybody's wallets, um, a brand new capsule collection, then we revealed that in November. All of those people for free are holding the first ever virtual gear only collection. It's a range of about 16 pieces, all hoodies. And depending on the scarcity, you might have opened up something that had a rare trade from G-Money, from the Board API Club, maybe from the Punks Comics or something that was just inspired by the archive of Adidas. So now we're gonna be building more utility in, in where we go next. And I think we've told the community that one of the most important areas we're trying to crack next is identity. Mm. And identity means a couple things to us. It's how do I want to represent myself? And then what do I get to own? Ownership is a big component of identity. So we're going to be playing into identity, into those two, let's say, pillars of it this next year. This is a lot. This is not nothing. And again, it's refreshing because a lot of these companies, they're ready to maybe talk about Web3, but it's still like theoretical. You know, this is actually going from theory to, to practice. You guys are doing stuff. What would you say to companies that I'm talking about that they're still on the sidelines and crypto seems maybe vaguely toxic to them, why are they going to be proven wrong? Yeah, I mean, look, you can be first, best, and only, but now you're not going to be first. You're not going to be only. So you need to do things that feel best and really, let's say, extend and amplify what your values are as a company, what you want to stand for, where you're trying to go as a brand. So at this stage, there's a lot more case studies and examples of brands who've done it because we've just been in this space now for at least a year and a half. I'd say Adidas was one of the first, but now we're definitely not one of the first. It's getting more cluttered. So if you're a brand that's on the sidelines, there's absolutely ways in, but I think you need to be clear with what are you trying to achieve, how much risk as a company you're willing to take on. And then also think about, are you in the DeFi space? Are you in the FinTech space? Are you getting into the gaming space? Are you getting into crypto? Are you getting into NFT collecting? Be really clear, because I find also some brands don't really differentiate, but those are certainly different communities with different directions that they're going. So if you really wanna understand and, and build membership and community and co-creation into your core business, I mean, you can co-create and collaborate with NFT communities, and there's a lot of compelling projects that are out there right now. So you also have some choice. How close do you think we are to Adidas accepting crypto for payment? Is that I mean, ever gonna happen? We've talked about it, and then part of me was like, I don't know if it's really solving a problem because right. buying 100%. sneakers and purchasing clothes, you know, it's not a really expensive proposition where we don't have fiat currency to go buy the stuff we want necessarily. Even now, sneakers can be God, like, I think the thing next, I, I don't think it's like, oh, are we going to take crypto? I think there's interesting payments in ApeCoin and some of the other coins and currencies that are coming out that could be even more surprising if Adidas was going to maybe gate exclusive drops for specific communities and specific currencies. I think that's something that might be more compelling to us because what it is is now it's about getting our products and the scarcity into the right hands. And there's ways to even find who those right hands are, who those communities are, and make sure we can build even token-gated, maybe even through the currencies that we accept, like you said, 
opportunities for them to beat the bots and not have to play the game of waiting for the sneaker drop and getting the L, right? They can be whitelisted into opportunities, and that's stuff that we're starting to scope out now. Okay, I heard maybe some hints in there. Maybe, um, maybe. Let's end on this. The reason I brought up even accepting crypto's payment, you said something really interesting just now on your panel about what a big moment it was internally when Elon Musk announced that Tesla would accept crypto as payment for a Tesla. Now, at the time, I thought, who's going to buy a Tesla, though, with crypto? And I think to this day, they never share the numbers. I don't think anyone did. But you said that was like a real awakening internally at the company? I think anybody, like hype is hype, right? And that created a lot of hype. And it just sparked a conversation. And that conversation around like 55 people jumping on this email being like, oh, well, Elon Musk is accepting crypto. What should Adidas do? I think those of us that knew were like, well, I don't think just accepting crypto is really what it means to get in the space. And obviously it's not going to be adding value to the space because a brand like Adidas is there for just saying, okay, now you can buy a pair of sneakers with cryptocurrency. But we did use it as a slipstream because now we caught people's imagination and Elon Musk helped to open that door for us just a little bit so we could capture people's imaginations internally and start the conversation with a bunch of our colleagues around, okay, well, if Adidas was to do something in blockchain, what should that be? Very cool. Yeah. You ended up doing a lot. Yeah. Okay, we'll keep watching. We'll see what comes next. Erica, thanks. Thanks. A couple things in there. I mean, first of all, I wondered, like, did we just break some news? Because, you know, when I asked her about when Adidas would start accepting crypto, it sure sounded like she said, well, we're thinking about token-gated sneaker drops um, to remove the bots. I mean, I'm not a sneakerhead myself, but I know it's a whole thing where the drop happens and people are scrambling and then, oh, you didn't get it. Everyone hates that. Token gated would be really interesting. And then then she mentioned ApeCoin, which I guess is an obvious fit since Adidas has already done a lot with Board Yacht Club. I mean, it might be a little disappointing to some folks if, you know, Adidas does its first um, token gated offering and it's ApeCoin, you know, well, what if you don't have ApeCoin? But they're obviously thinking about more things to do. Yeah. And on that note, I mean, she mentioned the idea of like exclusive drops for specific communities and specific currencies. So um, I think the idea is presumably to, you know, reward, I guess, long term holders of, of those uh, of those communities and to really play into that notion of community. So hopefully people who don't hold ApeCoin won't be too disappointed down the line. Yeah, it's it's funny. I mean, I I wrote a column about this over a year ago and my mentions on Twitter had never been so ruined. But even though I think BAYC has done a lot that is interesting and has certainly achieved a lot, I also think it's kind of culty. I mean, sorry, um, you know, this triggered all the ape holders, but it is like I saw a lot of the folks at NFT Paris who were the board ape people and they're all wearing their ape gear and it's it's not the best people. <laughs> I mean, everyone is different, but the uh, the community is like it's extremely white and male and broy. All that said, my point is, it's interesting to me that Adidas like as a brand on the whole has decided to align itself so closely with Board Ape Yacht Club. I just wonder how that will play out. Of course, famously Adidas brought on Kanye West and that went really well for a while until it didn't. And now Adidas is trying to back away from Kanye. So um, I purely bring that up as an example of like, you know, when, when you're a global apparel brand and you align yourself with one either influencer or celebrity or sub brand, there's risk and reward. I think, I mean, it was inevitable that Adidas was going to go for Bored Apes simply because they are probably the most recognizable NFT out there at the moment. I mean, it's it's CryptoPunks or Bored Apes and maybe something like Doodles, um, a, a slightly distant third. I'm bracing myself for our mentions to be absolutely rinsed <laughs> because of this. <laughs> well, look, look, we're not anti. I mean, 
we had the founders of, of Board Ape Yacht Club on the podcast, and they were great. One other thing that, that really struck me, and I, I know I said it in the interview, so it's obvious that it struck me, but Adidas crediting Elon Musk and Tesla, you know? I mean, she, she said that that started a conversation inside the company. I mean, it sounds like quite literally, even though the irony is Tesla quickly backed away from Bitcoin, but it sounds like Tesla announcing it would accept Bitcoin as payment um, prompted like all of Adidas's Web3 ambitions. I think the the really interesting thing that jumped out at me um, was the fact that it took them like ten months of prep to get to a place where they, you know, where people were saying, "Hey, you're you're really early to this," and it does sort of go to show that companies can't just jump into this space; they really need to lay the groundwork. That's a huge takeaway I had: is these brands want to do things, but they have to do them authentically. Well, a lot of content there, and there's more on the website. So for our loyal listeners who've made it here to the end. There's more goodies online. Just head to our video section of our site for a lot more of the interviews. And uh, that's all I have. I, I really, I'm going to be thinking about that conference for a long time. I think it was a big hit. Yeah, absolutely. Go and check out all our interviews, guys. That's our show today. Thanks for listening. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to GM wherever you podcast. And if you head to our website, decrypt.co, you can find the full videos of every interview with every guest. Finally, we have a Telegram room for our loyal GM listeners. The address is t.me slash GM podcast. If you pop in there, you can get direct access to the co-host. You can suggest future guests, submit comments, and ask questions. It's t.me slash GM podcast. GM. GM.